Hello, listeners. Welcome to Educational Landscapes, Lessons from Leaders. On today's episode, we are going to learn from Delia Lang. Welcome to the show, Delia. Thank you. It's my pleasure. And thank you for having me. Absolutely. So to get us going, what is your educational leadership title or titles? So I am the Executive Associate Dean for Educational Affairs at the Rollins School of Public Health. And what does that title mean? <laughs> um, let's see. That title um, means I am responsible for um, educational programming and educational planning. Um, that's sort of the big umbrella uh, role. I would say within that, there's sort of like um, three buckets or interrelated buckets of roles. One is specific to uh, programmatic and curricular development, and that includes thinking about who we want to teach in our programs, uh, so who has access to our, our educational programs, how do we want to teach, that includes not just modality of teaching, like in-person or hybrid or uh, online, but also classroom environment and inclusive learning environments. Um, and then also what we teach. So that relates more to content. And do we provide the knowledge and the skill set for students to be prepared for, for the workforce? And then another bucket is supporting the school's education committee and liaising with the provost office around curricular issues. And then the third bucket is um, overseeing and ensuring that we have um, our accreditation always up to par. And then when reaccreditation co time comes around, just overseeing that process and the documentation, which is always a great time. <laughs> oh, indeed. I was going to say, I'm sure there are many people who are like, thank goodness, it's Delia. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're all lining up to participate and volunteer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so as we think about these these broad but interrelated buckets, the programmatic, the um, education committees and provost and accreditation, what skills do you use in order to be able to juggle the work that you have to do? Yeah, um, so lots of skills that are encompassed in all of those roles because I really interact with so many groups of, of people who um, are in, in a variety of, of roles themselves. So certainly at the highest level, I would say just having uh, leadership skills and having a clear vision of what our goals are and what our strategies are to achieve those goals and how to measure progress. Of course, that's important in any kind of organization and academic settings are no different because we want to make sure that we always work towards something that, that we say is our goal or our mission. Um, but how do we get there is through collaboration and teamwork. Um, part of that includes problem solving, of course, and communication skills. Um, I know that's sort of like an obvious, but I feel like it has to be stated <laughs> that uh, you have to have communication skills and sort of those soft skills to work with a variety of individuals and approaches, even approaches to problem solving, right? Not everybody approaches problem solving in the same way. 
And um, I think what I've learned is that delegation is a skill, which I'm still kind of learning a little bit more about, but that is an important one too. Indeed, indeed. I'm glad you brought up delegation because I think it's one of those that people don't always think about in in Mm -hmm. terms of leadership. It's, oh, you will do it all. And so talk a bit more about delegation and what you're learning. Yeah, so I think what I'm learning is I think you you hit the nail on the head with that approach. Um, and that's certainly, I think, part of uh, maybe our training uh, to some extent, maybe also part of, you know, being women and nurturing and wanting just to take care of people and making sure everybody's okay and you still get tasks done and multitasking and Um, sometimes it doesn't come as natural uh, to me anyways that hey let's pause and see who is even better equipped to do x y and z task because I'm not best equipped at all tasks obviously and so what is the the best and most efficient way to move to a certain goal or to get a task done and who do you have to engage make a plan for that and equip them to be successful in that and then be specific in your delegation and give you know the guidance and the support and uh, the parameters for for what needs to be done and i think um I think there's an approach to that and a skill set to do that well, uh, again, to to set up people for success. And oftentimes I have found myself thinking, oh, you know what, like that is a process in itself that I have to pause and think about. And so why don't I just like quickly do it (laughs) and then I don't have to deal with all of that, which is unfair and inappropriate in multiple levels. A, because I'm not the best person for the task. B, because it really takes away from somebody whose job it is to do that and also potential for growth for somebody to do that. And so these are all the things I'm learning to be better at that in a strategic and, and thoughtful way. Thank you. I really I really love the richness of that um, understanding about delegation and how much it is about supporting and growing others and setting them up for success. Yeah, thank you. Welcome. So recognizing you probably didn't start in this role here at Emory, <laughs> so, um, can you tell us a bit about what was your journey that led to this current role? Yeah, so it was uh, definitely a journey that I didn't necessarily set out on from the very beginning and didn't really anticipate, uh, but one that I'm very grateful to be to be on. So I will start off by saying that. So I started at uh, Emory here at Rollins um, 22 years ago this fall, it will be. And I, I came in as a postdoc and mainly working on research uh, with a team of researchers doing development and implementation and evaluation of HIV prevention interventions, actually. And so I managed numerous research projects uh, here in the US and overseas. And what I learned is that I really enjoyed the training aspect of that work. So I loved um, teaching and training research teams on 
different aspects of the of the research process, like research methods and data management and how to do that in, in um, resource constrained settings and just um, seeing these large scale projects just unfolding in real life across all these different kinds of settings really, you know, spoke to me. And so that um, translated into my classroom teaching. I'm a faculty in the um, Behavioral, Social, and Health Education Sciences here at Rollins, uh, BSHES for short, where uh, I teach master's students in, in these areas like research methods and applied uh, statistical analysis and theory and survey methods. So there was, um, there was a deep satisfaction seeing the, the research unfolding in the field, but then there was this real satisfaction seeing students grow in terms of their public health knowledge and skill sets in a short period of time. So there's like this over here in the field takes a while to kind of take, but you could see the skill set and how students grow like within sometimes weeks, like a few months, like a semester for sure. And that uh, was really, really meaningful to me. And, and I think that also probably comes from uh, my training. My, my doctor is in, in clinical psychology. And so I started out in that world working with patients and with clients. And, and there you can immediately sort of see the impact that you're having. And so that really spoke to me. And so I trended more toward teaching and education. Um, and I was tapped to become the director of the MPH program in the Beaches department. Uh, which I did for about eight years. And so I oversaw the curriculum there and working with diverse students and, and just really learning this, the needs of students who are juggling so many competing priorities and, and what that meant for us in terms of what our responsibility was uh, for education and training. And um, that then led to, uh, under the department chair at the time, Dr. Colleen McBride, um, I had the opportunity to become, um, to lead a new office, the Office of um, Evidence-Based Learning, uh, which I know you and I have talked about before. And the, the purpose here was to sort of elevate scholarship of teaching and learning and looking at pedagogical approaches and best practices and uh, really raising sort of the profile of uh, looking at teaching from from a more scholarly perspective. And so that was a really unique position that I enjoyed. And then that led to um, the opportunity to lead the school's reaccreditation in 2018, 2019. And that was a huge lift because our accrediting um, agency at the time had completely revamped our, the criteria. And so it was a little bit of a restart for us. And um, I know I always laugh because accreditation is not really anybody's favorite uh, kind of task <laughs> in academia. But honestly, um, I learned so much through that process in terms of why we do the things we do and, and what are really important things versus what are some sort of like bureaucratic things that we have to do. So that was really eye-opening. And then uh, just um, different opportunities opened up for me to become involved at shaping institutional vision and policies for uh, for education and for our future trajectory as a school in education. So that's kind of where I landed. And then last year when our new Dean, uh, Dean Fallon came on board, um, she asked me if I would take on this role. So probably more than you wanted to hear, but sort of like a, a long about way to uh, education from not really educational beginnings. <laughs> I 
Love it. I don't think it was too long because I'm always curious about people's pathways and whether somebody knew from the very beginning that they wanted to be an educator or a leader or it was something along the way that led them to that. Yeah, so. yeah. And I think that that develops uh, over time sometimes. And I think that it's important to kind of stay open to those opportunities. Indeed, indeed. And um, so really appreciate the the breadth of um, your experience and kind of that logic line, like when you talked about discovering how much you loved training and, you know, the short term and long term, seeing those effects. Um, I was and once you said that, I was like, oh, I see the thread. I see the thread. <laughs> Um, so as you know, you think about that journey that you had, um, what do you wish you knew before stepping into your current role? You know, uh, Lima, that's such a great question. And I was thinking a bit about this question and then I thought, um, I wish I could reward this question just slightly. <laughs> Feel free to. <laughs> and I was hoping you would say just that. So um, if I could reframe it just slightly, I would say, why do I wish that I would have remembered as I took on this position? And what I wish I had remembered um, is that um, the imposter syndrome is a real thing and a constant companion <laughs> that you have to really learn to manage. And um through all the different roles I, I described in my previous response, um, at each step of the way, I assumed a role with more responsibility. And so my good old imposter syndrome companion was always right there by my side, rearing its ugly head and raising those typical questions of doubt that we have, right? Like, I really cut out for this. And, you know, I always knew at least... 10, 12 people who could do much better justice to the role than I thought I could. Um, and so why should I really say yes to this position? And this time they're really gonna find me out. Like, you know, I've gotten away with it all these years, but this is really gonna be the last time. And when they do find out I've been faking it all this time, it's gonna be such an excruciatingly painful time. And so, at no time have any of these scenarios I played out in my head actually happened, right? Which we all know to be true. So I just wish that I would have remembered that it's okay um, to even go through this thought, thought process, to have really trusted more that I was equipped with the skills, um, to even have trusted the people who have asked me that they saw something in me that maybe perhaps they trusted more than I did. And I guess maybe most of all that I was surrounded by an incredible network of people and colleagues. Um, really the culture of collaboration here at Rollins is, is truly extraordinary. And so I just wish I would have remembered that I can really rely on them and rely on my experience. And I'm not alone in this, uh, which is actually the truth rather than the stories I was building up. And it would have been a very helpful uh, process to engage in more of that thinking uh, at the start of stepping into these roles. But I think it's just important to, um, for those of us who, who do deal with this imposter syndrome, um, to kind of remind ourselves that 
you, you just have to manage it and uh, to look at history and see what data history provides for us. I love that. And the way you described uh, that visual of, oh, the imposter syndrome is just tagging <laughs> along and going, where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> where do you think you're going? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, gosh. But yes, thank you. I think those are really important perspectives because a lot of us experience it. And I don't think it's talked about enough. It's starting to be, but a yeah. lot of people feel it without having discussions. Yeah, yeah I think you're right. I think we, we do have more spaces where it's safe to talk about it than, than we did before. And I think that's important. I think it's important to bring up with our students more as well so that they can see that we even we struggle um, because I think sometimes they look at us and they think, oh, wow, this person has it made. They have like X, Y, and Z role. They're a faculty, they're a professor, they're all researchers or all these things. And surely it's like all wrapped up with a beautiful bow. And I think it's important to kind of show that that may be what it seems, but there's all this internal dialogue sometimes happening that they are also going through as they're going through their educational experience. Uh, and I hear that from students all the time, you know, am I cut out for this Emory experience? You know, maybe I should have gone to another school or a different program. I'm not gonna be good enough. And it's, no, this is, you know, a, a lot of us go through this and, and I think it's, it's good for them to hear um, and to maybe even help model what that might look like to come on the other side successful. Indeed, indeed. Well, we hope we can all uh, learn to role model that yeah. so that we make it more common discussion in yeah. society. Mm -hmm. Thank you. So recognizing that you've got those three buckets, and so that's quite a bit of interrelated, but a lot of things. What continuing professional development do you do in order to keep up with the needs of your role? Yeah, and I think... Um... I think in some ways this question even relates to the previous question about how how do you kind of manage some of that imposter syndrome, right? Because if we recognize that we always have more to learn and then we pursue those opportunities, you know, that voice starts to become a little dimmer. So um, I have uh, quite a few opportunities to engage with colleagues and peers from uh, not just here at Rollins, but from other institutions as well. And so, for example, we have um, two annual meetings through our associations of schools and programs in public health um, that I attend, you know, regularly, even through COVID, they were all online, but it's just a really great group of peers who are in similar roles across peer institutions and across other universities in the country and even internationally at this point, actually. And so it's it's great to come together and just um, talk about similar challenges that we are going through, not just in terms of um, the, the work that we do, although that is hugely important and a big part of it, but even some of these personal things that, that we struggle with and for um, people who come into new roles um, in a more junior um, in a more junior way. And so those have been really invaluable for me. So I continue to seek that out uh, as well as just opportunities to learn more about higher education and best pedagogical practices. And especially as we're emerging from, from COVID um, and what the last three years have meant for us in, in the education space and what it's meant for students 
in the education space as well as faculty who teach our students has been so challenging. So just really learning more about we can't go back to whatever we think normal was before. Like, what does this mean after COVID and how do we adapt going forward? And um, part of that is really trying to understand more and continue to advance issues of diversity, equity, inclusion, and anti-racism in the way in which we create our educational programs. So that's that's on the content side, but also how we deliver our programs and how we create those environments, both physically and virtually, right? Because um, students, students may take um, courses online or in person, but how do we facilitate that sense of belonging and inclusivity uh, for our students? And so those are important ways, um, but also again, continually honing leadership skills. There's always so much more I can learn there. So uh, the list can go on, but those are some, some of the top ones. Thank you. Um, I love that you talked about the community that uh, you have uh, with people who have similar types of roles and thinking about the, you know, junior folks who are coming through. Yeah. And so building off of that, what advice would you give someone interested in doing the same type of leadership role that you have? Yeah, yeah. I think... Um... Just based on my experience, um, I would say surround yourself with with trusted colleagues and peers, both within your institution, but also outside your organization, where you can have like really honest and authentic conversations about your role and and your concerns and challenges that come up in like your hopes and aspirations about the role. And I would say, make sure these are people who are transparent and truthful. And by that, I mean, not just the yay-sayers who are going to be just so excited that you're entering in this new role, but also those who are going to say, yes, this is great. And also just know about all of these potential pitfalls or all of these like challenge areas, not that they can't be overcome, but you know, what does, what might this mean for you in these other areas so that you go in it, um, you know, with, with open eyes and, and fully informed. I think that's, that's super important. So those real true one or two mentors that, that you can do that with and have that relationship with. And, um, these leadership roles typically, typically come mid career or later, um, so there are really important decisions that you have to make when stepping into a role like this, because invariably you, when you say yes to this, you have to say no to something else that you have to let go so that you can make space uh, for the new role. And while that may sometimes sound really freeing, like, oh, I don't, you know, I don't have to do X, Y, or Z. I, I get to do this. It can also be a really tough choice. Um and that's not always so easy and straightforward about what you're going to let go. And I think sometimes the tendency can also be that, oh, I can still do it all. And that's that's a big no. That that's a that's a big recipe for disaster in my mind, both in terms of your professional role and just your private person and your mental health and burnout and all of those things. And so having somebody who you can confidentially um, enter into a, a discourse with who can be trusted to uh, consider all of those professional and also personal factors that go into that decision, um, I think is my best advice. Thank you. And I'm so glad you brought that last bit up because I was thinking about how 
you know, as academics, we always hear about the tripartite mission and we, you know, we need to contribute to teaching, service, scholarship. And so I was very curious about that. Like as people move up in leadership roles, can they manage to continue to do all three or or do they have to make adjustments along the way? Yeah, yeah. And I think that's that's difficult. And I think the answer for that is going to look differently for each person, depending on what faculty role they have and what the institution um, guidelines are and and what it means and where are they in, in the stage of promotion and advancement. And so many things come into that. And I think it's really important to just consider all of those factors and and consider what you know, what your preference is also, I think, yes, we, you're so right. We talk about uh, the, the mission of the acad academia and what we're supposed to be doing. And of course, we all selected and chosen to be here for those key reasons. But when you have these forks in the road, I think it's also important to kind of say, well, yes, but where, like, where is, what's my own personal mission? Like, where am I going to be fulfilled? And what's going to really get me excited to come to the office physically or virtually every day um, of the week as well? And does that align with this institution or with the department or with where I am? Is that feasible here? And I think those are really important questions to ask. And they're really important answers to get from people who are brave and courageous to give you the, the correct answer. Thank you. Such wise, wise words of advice. Thank you. So, you know, as you reflect on um, the different roles that you've had to date, how would you say you go about supporting or expanding education in your profession or through your roles? Yeah, so I think this um, is particularly relevant to um, to me and to our school right now because under our new dean, who I mentioned earlier, she started here at Rollins last July. We started a um, new process, uh, a new strategic planning process in the fall, and we're almost now on the tail end of that, uh, wrapping up the strategic planning for the next five years and. It is, um, again, it's been an, an incredible learning experience to go, to go through this process and to really lay out a roadmap that is going to guide our actions and our efforts and our resources. And so a big part of this plan, of course, is the educational mission of the school. <clears throat> and so while it's not entirely finalized, I know that it's going to have a strong component because again, you know, the the, the, what you mentioned, the, um, the the three pillars of what we do. And so I think that it's not going to somehow be earth shattering or novel, but it's going to be earth shattering and novel for us as a culture here at Rollins in ways in which we can sort of re-envision what we do um, and, and how we uh, deliver education and training. And so I think... Um, stay tuned for more to come, but expanding education in our profession in public health through this role, I think is going to be a key part of the strategic planning. And I'm so excited to um, to embark on, on those action plans and work with our teams to make that happen. 
Uh, that is so exciting, so exciting. And uh, when the strategic plan is officially out, I will make sure to post a link to it um, so that people can see it. Perfect. That's wonderful. <laughs> um, so as I think about, you know, you helped lead a reaccreditation, you know, you've worked uh, on a strategic, you know, a new strategic plan. And I'd love to hear, what would you say contributed to your biggest successes thus far? Yeah, so I think this was um, one of the easier questions for me uh, to address because I am so aware and so conscious that without having the team of individuals that, that I work with and the leadership um, of this great school, that we've had here for for so long and now under new leadership all of this would not really be be possible so to me being part of this exceptional team is is part of the success um also i would say the way that i show up in my role and the way in which i can bring what i have to offer as a person as a professional to this role it's also because to me, it's important to not have my whole identity wrapped into just my work. And so I love what I do. Um, and I am a person who's excited to come to work every day. Um, okay, so maybe not every day. There's some hard days, but like 95% of my days. Okay, let's just be honest. So as much as I love what I do... I think that having my identity just be solely wrapped up into my work would just be too narrow for me in a way that wouldn't really allow me to bring my best to my work. And so ultimately, I think it would be not sufficiently satisfying and that would not make me the best that I could be in my role. So therefore, I think that to a degree that I, I can say um, I've been successful is due to the support system that I have at work, but also outside of work, my faith community, my I have a nine-year-old son who keeps me grounded in the really important things in life, such as when is my new soccer game? And can we go to the next gas station to find the next prime drink flavor that I don't have for my collection? So these are key things we have to deal with on a daily basis that balance out everything else that happens at work. And so when I come here, I come refreshed because there's multiple identities that are really important to me. Um, and so it's not just one thing. I, I love that. I think it's so important for us to recognize how much our personal and professional identities are, are inbuilt in that and that we shouldn't be sucked up Yes. Uh, by one or the other. Yeah. So which which is going to make me tweak the next question a bit. Um, and this is what are your biggest growth opportunities, whether personally or professionally? Mm, OK, yeah, you threw something in there. Mm -hmm. So I hear that. Um, so definitely, I think professionally um, growing more in my in my leadership approach. Uh, the delegation piece that I mentioned, managing multiple tasks and sort of uh, sometimes the pressure that comes from that. And I think that spills over into the personal question as well, because multitasking sometimes uh, involves like figuring out all the work stuff and the family and the personal stuff. 
And sometimes I feel like, oh yeah, this I can juggle this. This is like all the balls are in the air and they seem to like be all falling down in a way that I can catch them. And then just when I think I got it just so, you know, uh, a whole bunch of things drop and it's it's no longer so well balanced and you have to kind of regroup. So I think continuously having an eye out for that and making sure that um, those areas of your life that are really important to me that um, that I devote the, the time to them that that is necessary. So I think that is a continuous growth opportunity. Um, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. So going back to your work for just a second, um, what do you love most about your work and what you do? So I love the most the people I work with, the students um, and my peers and my colleagues. And just knowing that I am just part of something bigger that is that's bigger than just what we do here on a day-to-day basis. So it's really knowing that I, I'm part of a puzzle that if it was just that part of the puzzle, it wouldn't be as great as if we all put our puzzle pieces together to create sort of this tapestry that we call Rollins School of Public Health. And we're um, educating these, you know, really great um, students and scholars and professionals to go out in the world and do the things that we believe are so important to do. And, and just reflecting back and thinking, oh, I really, I really had a, a, a small role in that and I contributed to that in some ways. Um, that is just really meaningful and, and impactful for me. That's wonderful, wonderful. And kind of building off of that um, for a second, as you reflect on your experiences to date, what would you say if somebody to, was to ask you, what are your passions around education mm. or what is your education philosophy? So, yeah, I think I would point to two sort of extremes. And in in my field, in uh, social sciences, we talk about the social ecologic model a lot. So we talk about the individual level and then we go broad all the way to societal and institutional level. So <clears throat> if I could speak of it from those kind of uh, from two ends at the institutional level, um, I'm just so grateful to be in a position where I can help shape the, the educational priorities in public health at our school. I think that's a real privilege and it's it's also a significant responsibility to know that the programs and the structures that we put in place to educate and train students and community partners and other professionals who seek to further elevate and advance the great work of public health that that they come here and that we have this, um, we're designing the best possible opportunity for them to do that. Um, that is that is great at that level. And this is kind of coming full circle because um, that is what gives me sort of this real energy and drive to do that because I know it can impact a lot of people um, at sort of like larger scale. But then at the individual level, um, this is where we kind of started is like you get the immediate impact from working with students who are so passionate about learning and and it's still so meaningful to me to have those one-on-one -on -one interactions and opportunities for mentorship and just seeing someone's journey up close is is also such a privilege and 
I'm just so thankful to all my students because they seek me out to learn and grow from me. And little do they know that I learn and grow from them in return so much more as well. And so I really cherish those opportunities and those relationships as well. Oh, I love that. I always tell people that as educators, we're constant learners. Yes, absolutely. So, um, and I love you talked about it when we were talking about personal and professional. So recognizing you are more than your career. <laughs> what are some things, um, other things that you do outside of work to help maintain joy in life and practice? <laughs> yes. So I mentioned I have uh, my son uh, who is nine years old. He's finishing fourth grade. Um, I love, love, love to travel. And I have been fortunate that I've been able to do so quite a bit before I became a parent. And now I get to take him to all my favorite places and experience them through his eyes, which is just such an exciting opportunity. Um, so if I couldn't do what I do now, or I just had the leisure to do whatever I wanted to do, I would probably just, you know, travel the world and live in different places for months at a time and just keep on going. So <laughs> um, so that's um, really sort of my my overarching passion in life, just to uh, see new places and experience new people who are different and see life differently and just learn from that. So um, so I love to do that. And when I can't do that, I watch it on TV and uh, I live vicariously through people who do it. And um, yeah, those are some of my top ones. Eating good food which goes very well with the handy traveling to different places. Yes, it does. It certainly does. So <laughs> as somebody who is also a travel bug, what are your current top three favorite destinations? So great, great question. Um, so the next one on our list uh, for December this year is going to be Cape Town, South Africa. And that is actually a place where I had the great opportunity to live for a year early on in my career when I was managing one of those projects that I mentioned earlier on. And so um, I made some great connections and great friends who live there. Um, I visited back after the project ended a few times, but I have not been in about 15 years now. And so I think uh, my son is now at a place where he can appreciate um, what that means. And so we're going to um, take the plunge and, and do that. Um, I'm so excited for, for this trip and I just can't wait. I think other ones are, I have not traveled to Asia yet. So I would love to travel to Vietnam is one of my top ones. And then the other one would be South America, specifically Peru, oh. and to see some of the ruins and um, some of that ancient culture there. So, but you know, it's a tough question because I could give you like a whole other list. <laughs> and I know that's not the point of this podcast, but I could go on and on. So those are top three, uh, but, but there's so many competing places. And that is why we will take that part of the conversation offline to, yes. you know, exchange notes and all of that since uh, I understand that love for travel. So those were my main questions for you for today's episode. But before I let you go, any last words of wisdom that you'd like to share for aspiring educators or education leaders? 
So thank you so much, Ulemu, for this opportunity to share about my experience and for inviting me um, during this time. I would say just follow that passion and what's in your gut in terms of education and how you want to be involved in educating um, the next generation of, of students and leaders out there, whatever your uh, discipline is. I think just listening to that voice is important that that tells you that there's something in you that is uh, educating others is such a giving thing to do. Um, education is more than just sitting in front of a classroom and teaching, uh, although it can be that and that can be very rewarding, but it can be mentoring and advising and really um, I think we can probably all point to somebody in our history by name and probably by day and time when we sat in the chair and they some something meaningful that we still remember that impacted our trajectory to today. And so we can be that to many, many students today. And so I would say, go and do it. Thank you so much. Those are wonderful words to end on. Thank you.